Welcome to Brain Pain. I'm John, your host, and we're going to explore the vast world of psychology. I want to remind everyone that I'm not a therapist. I am not a licensed psychologist. I am just a PhD student, doctoral student, and I'm here to talk about psychology. So today's a special podcast. It is Veterans Day, at least here in the United States. I realize I have a lot of listeners who are outside the United States, and I'm glad you're here, but today I'm going to talk about a lot of veteran-associated things. First, I want to start off with why Veterans Day is tied into brain pain. I am a combat veteran. I know several combat veterans who are good friends of mine. And my good friends, we all are pretty much, well, I was about to say normal, but that's really a a vague concept, isn't it? And I think what I really mean to say is that we are healthy mentally. Uh, We came back and we may have had to deal with and process things. But we were able to come through it and be functional and contributors to society. All of my close friends who are combat veterans are actually very successful. I'm not surprised because they're very driven individuals who understand when to sacrifice and how to work hard. But not everybody came back whole. Of course, we see veterans that have come back from combat that are missing limbs, that have wounds, that have physical scars that we can see. And it's been said over and over that there's a lot of scars that we cannot see on the inside of a lot of people who look otherwise healthy. This is one of the reasons I'm pursuing my doctorate degree, so that I can become a psychologist and work with veterans. So... What I'm going to talk about today is PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, for those that don't know it. So the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, and specifically 5th edition, will talk about the symptoms and how to diagnose post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. When you look at what causes PTSD, and this isn't anyone, It is exposure to trauma. The more trauma you are exposed to, the more incidents of trauma you are exposed to, the more likely you are to develop PTSD. Basically, it causes fear response when you should typically not have fear response. That's a really, really simplistic way of putting it. But the whole concept is It causes a lot of stress, a lot of fear, a lot of dysfunction in an individual's life. Some, like anything, it's it's on a spectrum, and some have mild forms and some have extreme forms, but regardless, it's still a, a very serious situation. We have veterans every day who are committing suicide because they haven't asked for help when they need it, dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. I was in the Navy, 
And my combat experience was different than what you see in the movies. And it just really was different, especially in the Middle East. That being said, uh, I talked to my Uncle Franklin when he was alive. Uh, he's my, actually my great-uncle. And he was in World War II in Okinawa and in the Pacific. And he saw some pretty terrible things. And he talked about people being shell-shocked, uh, which was PTSD uh, for the most part. And how they coped with all the things they saw. But at the same time, I think, and this is my personal anecdotal thoughts, uh, he grew up during the Depression. And so they had already seen a lot of terrible things by the time they went to war. Not nearly as bad as what you see at war, but they had seen some pretty rough stuff. He was a combat veteran that saw combat unlike anything I experienced. And we used to talk about it a little bit. And it was really interesting to see the difference based on how society had prepared them, what, they, what was acceptable at the time before he went into combat, what he saw prior to going into combat. The current, currently society says everything should be nice, soft, and easy. And that was never the case. That wasn't the case during the Depression. But let's move on to the subject of PTSD itself. I found out something new as I'm doing research on PTSD that I was unaware of at the time. They have a form of PTSD called complex PTSD. It overlaps a lot with individuals who may have PTSD and a comorbidity of borderline personality disorder. And I thought that was interesting, just because my first thought was like it would be for a lot of people is, well, does it matter? Does there need to be a distinction? But then I, of course, I thought, well, it's like anything else. And I, I did a little reading, and it, my second thought was more correct, which is if you treat the symptoms, that doesn't always solve the core problem. So if someone has complex PTSD versus... PTSD and borderline personality disorder, you may treat symptoms, but if you don't treat the core causes, it may never really heal. It's more like treating the symptoms of an infection without actually treating the infection. It doesn't get rid of the infection. It simply makes you feel better, but the infection could grow and become worse. And same concept. So you want to make sure that there's an accurate diagnosis. And it also made me realize that to understand PTSD and really have a handle on it, I'm going to have to go dig into borderline personality disorder to see how the comorbidity compares to complex PTSD. As a doctoral student, of course, I'm going to have to research borderline personality disorder anyway. I just haven't been there yet. I don't know a lot about it. I know some things about it, uh, specifically that uh, people with borderline personality disorder typically have very intense and unstable relationships. Uh, that's one of the things. There's a lot of people who have intense, unstable relationships that are not borderline personality disorder, just so we're clear. But that's one of the, the, the symptoms. Or that's one of the signs that someone has it. So to fully understand 
PTSD, I'm going to have to research complex PTSD and also borderline personality disorder so that I can speak to them intelligently. So having touched on what, and, and just barely on what PTSD is, we see examples of it in movies and, um, and in the news and in media all the time. So what are the criteria for PTSD? Well, according to the DSM-5, you have to have exposure directly. Okay, so it says a directly experiencing traumatic events, right? Event or events. Witnessing in person the events as it occurred to others. Learning that traumatic events occurred close family member or close friend. In cases of actual threatened death of a family member or a friend, uh, so if someone was very close to being killed. Experiencing repeated or extreme exposures to uh, details of traumatic events. One of the things in the military that is very traumatic is having to take a the remains of the deceased teammate back with you. That's, you know, collecting human remains, that's a huge trauma. The next thing is the presence of one or more of the following symptoms, which is reoccurrent, involuntary, and intrusive distressing memories of the trauma, uh, reoccurrent distressing dreams, disassociative reactions, such as flashbacks or uh, loss of awareness of present surroundings as the extreme, so literally just checking out. Um, intense to prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external cues. And these are the triggers that we talk about. Physiological reactions to cues as well. So that could be any number of other expressions of that. Next is persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the trauma. That's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, then you go on to negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with traumatic events. So that means your mood, and, uh, and it's really just a change in behavior. Marked alterations in arousal and reactivity associated with traumatic events. Um, this could be just irritable behavior, angry outbursts. It can become physical aggression, right, at the extreme end. It could become where someone just starts physically. And there, there's a number of cases where... Veterans have said they've went to seek help after they physically found themselves attacking, basically, someone they care about with no, with no, real, uh, no real reason. It's not like they're defending themselves. It's not like the other person was causing them any real harm. Just sometimes they catch them off guard and they would react physically to try and defend themselves against a perceived danger that was not. This also includes uh, self-destructive behavior. You'll see a lot of like heavy drinking, hypervigilance, which I found interesting because it had never occurred to me until I was started reading about how some people react when they develop PTSD, uh, that they become hypervigilant, they're aware of everything all the time, and their body has trouble shutting down, and that often leads to the drinking or drug abuse. They have exaggerated startle responses, problems with concentration, and a very common one is sleep disturbances, which ties into the nightmares. Um, the, they have a duration listed in the DSM-5 that it has to last for more than a month. 
and it has to cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. There's a broad area that that covers, but I think we all understand what that really is. Here's where it gets difficult. Because in the DSM-5, it says the disturbance is not attributable to the psycho- uh, excuse me, physiological effects of substance abuse, basically, or other medical condition. So if we have someone who's going through PTSD and they start drinking heavily, they could develop issues related with alcohol abuse. So then the diagnosis may be a little more tricky if we're tr- simply trying to treat someone for alcohol abuse. There's a couple other cool terms that are um, used in all of this. One is de-real, uh, excuse me, derealization. So that's where people are checking out. They have uh, experiences of unreality of surroundings. That means that it basically you disassociate. You, we've all kind of, well, I won't say we all. But a lot of us have gone through a period of time where we experience something where we feel like we're out of our own body, that the world seems distant, distorted, dreamlike, for one reason or other. It may have come from a trauma. It may have come from uh, any number of other things. The most common thing that, that is associated to is if you've ever experienced a close friend or relative's death and everything right after that just seems unreal. So that's that's how we that's how the DSM five just defines having PTSD. So how do we how do we treat that? Well, there's a couple different uh, there's, there's probably a bazillion different recommended therapies. The ones that I've read about the most, which doesn't mean they're the best, but one of them I found very interesting is rapid eye movement therapy. And rapid eye movement therapy is interesting because it doesn't really focus on the trauma. It focuses on the negative uh, feelings or the negative, yeah, basically the negative emotions that are associated with the trauma. I say it's interesting because they it, it seems to show uh, good results, but it, it to me it seemed like it was simply treating the symptoms, not the cause. However, there are many things, especially if you're in a behaviorist, if you're a behaviorist and you believe in, in the behaviorist model, you don't always have to treat the, the core of what's causing it by treating the symptoms, the, the cause will cease to become a problem. And just as I said, maybe that's true, but sometimes maybe it's not. But regardless, they call it eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So the concept is roughly that by doing a specific speed of eye movement while you're experiencing the emotions associated with your trauma, you will reprocess it and be desensitized to those triggers and to the feelings associated with that trauma depending on who, who you talk to. The, st- the first study I read about it is that we process in our sleep the day's events and the rapid eye movement 
during our sleep is how, is when we reprocess. Or that eye movement is how uh, our brain, you know, converts all that we've dealt with. Uh, that's when we have our dreams is during the rapid eye movement. And so they believe that that's processing. And so to reprocess, we create the rapid eye movement uh, during therapy. And I thought that's interesting. I, I, I still am very on the very beginning of understanding this, but I, I thought it was a very interesting treatment. And I, I kind of am curious to find out who came up, where they started with that, where they said, hey, you know what, let's see if we move the eyes back and forth. Uh, it had to be somebody who had done some sleep research, but trust me, when I run across it, we will talk about it in a podcast. The other common treatment is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm a big fan of cognitive behavioral therapy because I've seen that it has a lot of success across many, many mental illnesses and conditions. So what is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? It basically is exactly that. You actually have to be a participant in your own well-being. You have to be cognitive and change and help change behavior. So specifically for PTSD, it's what's called prolonged exposure. It's a form of CBT. And what happens is that the individual uses their imagination in a controlled setting. They describe in the present tense in therapy the trauma and the emotions that are raised by this trauma through the guidance of their therapist. Then they, re they typically record it and so that the patient can listen to it between sessions and process the emotions and practice breathing techniques and find, basically become adjusted to the stress so that when they experience the stress or the triggers or any of that, they've dealt with it. They know how to process it. They know how to deal with it. This is typically a, I don't know, about a three-month process uh, where they meet weekly. So that'd be, what, 15 sessions? Yeah, three months, 15 sessions. Let me see, I'm going to look. I'm actually going to look at this. The original was, yeah, okay, so the originally it was 12 sessions, and then they say now it's really typically a 15-session program. They, each session is anywhere from an hour to two hours, uh, depending on what's needed for that specific patient they start by making sure that they understand the patient's experiences so then what do they do so we understand the patients what the patient went through then you teach the patient breathing techniques on how to manage it helps manage anxiety and there's proof there's studies and i don't have one in front of me though that whenever you're feeling stress or disoriented or your body isn't you're having cognitive challenges is to breathe properly first Breathing properly, taking a moment to breathe, actually changes how your brain functions, which is phenomenal. That simply breathing, getting enough oxygen in, getting that oxygen to the brain, it changes. And when you do it consciously and controlled, it makes a difference. After you, you find out what the experience of the patient was, you make sure they understand the breathing techniques. They walk them through, basically, their, the anxiety that they feel when they feel this trauma. And then they practice breathing. So this is what you do in a session. Then they have homework. And here's where it can go a little sideways if the individual 
is a little too aggressive, which is they're supposed to try and re- relive this themselves, trying to do this at home as kind of homework. But it's important that they do it in very small steps until they really feel comfortable so they can have those small victories, which will lead to the, the bigger ones. The idea is that they will pick a, a, a traumatic situation, a stimuli, a whatever it is that, that sets them off, even if it's just the, the memory of whatever happened, and they will try to deal with some small part of that. And they gradually increase until they can cope with what's what they're dealing with. And this is that behavioral change. And they have a lot of success with this. It's interesting that this isn't always recommended. And I say that because I, I just recently read a study that said that there's a number of veterans who are a little afraid of it. And they think that it may be, from the studies that they've done, that it's not being explained in a manner that they can understand. Or a manner that, that shows them that, that it, it comes down to the monster in the closet, right? If you believe there's a monster in your closet, you're not going to want to go open that door. You're not even going to want to go over and put your ear against the door. But the truth is that were you going to do any of that, and I'm going to keep with this monster in the closet concept. Let's say that your your trigger is that monster in the closet. Well, if you believe there's a monster in the closet, you hide in your bed. Well, the first the first thing you would do is not run over and open the closet door. The first thing you'd do is learn to sit up in bed and then maybe get out of bed would be the next step and then slowly move closer to that door and maybe eventually put your ear against the door and listen and you see that you hear nothing and then eventually you would open that door and deal with your fear but it's a long gradual process it's not something you're going to do I mean three months that's, that's some serious work if you're actually working at it And that can sometimes be the downfall as well because people who are suffering depression or some other comorbidities may not be as likely to stick to the three months because, let's face it, if you're depressed, if you've ever even just had, if you've ever had even just a depressive day, I'm not even talking about long-term depression, I'm just talking about you were depressed one day, it's hard to do anything. It's hard to get out of bed, it's hard to brush your teeth, it's hard to make yourself some food. It may take more than those three months. But the idea is to keep working at it. All right. There's a lot more to PTSD, and I, I'm, I'm going to tell you now that the uh, next probably seven weeks, there will be uh, quite a bit of PTSD. There will be other things, but I will be breaking down more details of PTSD. I just felt that it being Veterans Day, when this will be released, that it would be important to talk about something that involved the United States veterans at least. And I I believe that a lot of this applies across the board to veterans in general. It's a, anybody who's gone through combat trauma, absolutely. So I don't know what the numbers are outside the United States. In the United States, there are roughly, the numbers I see are that there's uh, about 17 veterans a day committing suicide, which is over double the normal suicide rate in the general population. 
so we would like to, uh, one of the things I'd like to do is, is make it more accessible to veterans to go ask for help. Uh, and that's still going to be a challenge because in, within the veterans, when they go to do that very difficult job in the military of going to fight, there's definitely the whole concept of being strong all the time. And asking for help isn't always easy. And it's because they see it as a personal failure instead of simply, hey, this is a wound I got. I was wounded. It just happens to be mental. All right, I'm going to wrap this up. Remember, take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Rock on.